I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. On today's episode of the Sakara Life podcast, we are joined by a very esteemed guest, Dr. Leo Galland. Dr. Galland is a board-certified internist and is recognized as a world leader in functional and integrative medicine. He specializes in the gut microbiome and its relationship to immune function and systemic health. In the last few years, Dr. Galland has also been widely recognized for his incredible work and research around COVID-19, and today we're going to be digging into how the choices we make with our food can help us build immunity and combat long COVID. I'm honored to be sitting down with Dr. Galland and excited to share this incredible conversation with you all. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Leo Galland. All right, Dr. Galland, I'm so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast. Welcome. It's great to be here, Danielle. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we like to start out every episode asking about your mission, which I'm so curious uh, what your mission is, given you do so many amazing different things. Um, what is your mission here? What do you? What is your um, kind of dream as you see it pertaining to the work that you do? Well, what I really want to be able to do is to empower people to take care of themselves, improve their health, overcome disease and illness using the tools that they have available to them and only going to doctors is a last resort. Now, I think that's the only way we're really going to get a sustainable healthcare system. Amen. It's sweet. It's like we need our doctors to help keep us well. Um, instead, I feel like we're relying on the medical system to, um, when we're really sick, when it's almost like they can't, they don't have the tools to help us any longer unless it's something acute, which I know you focus particularly on people with complex chronic disorders, which I've personally experienced, but also I know lots of uh, our Saccharolites have experienced things like IBS and autoimmune, um, which I don't, I would love to know your opinion, but I don't think most of conventional medicine is fully equipped yet to help with things like that. So what are what are your thoughts? And when you say complex chronic issues, can you define that? Uh, right, well, basically anything that someone chooses to bring to me, I will try to help them with. Most people that come in to see me have already consulted a lot of different practitioners. And initially people would have gone to specialists you know, they, their primary physician wasn't able to help them. So they would consult specialists, gastroenterologists, rheumatologists, neurologists. And what I found was that the more specialists a person had been to, 
without getting help, the more likely it was that I could help them because because they had problems that the specialists didn't know how to look at or or look into. Um, and however, over the years, as I've been doing this work and teaching it, I see more and more people, patients who have been to integrative practitioners and alternative practitioners, many of whom are people that I have taught. So as a result, whatever uh, the bar keeps getting raised, it gets, they get harder and harder and more complicated and more quirky in their, in their responses. So it could be something as simple and straightforward as severe allergies, but more often, or something like inflammatory bowel disease, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. I've spent um, years treating patients with those conditions um, and they're chronic. Uh, I think the complexity lies in the fact that it's not the same disease for everybody who is given that diagnosis. Um, and uh, along the way, I've written three textbook chapters about nutritional approaches to inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, certainly chronic fatigue and um, fibromyalgia, chronic tick-borne ailments, um, those, are, those, those are all problems that people are having a hard time getting answers to, and so they wind up seeing me. Most recently, it's been COVID-19. And since the beginning of the pandemic, or before the beginning of the pandemic, going back to January of 2020, when I realized this is not staying in China, and I need to understand what what's going on here with this illness. I started intensively studying um, SARS, the previous version of this, and all the research that was being done on the acute uh, COVID-19. And I started putting together protocols um, and started posting them online as early as February of 2020. Um, and, um, and more recently have been dealing with people with long COVID, which is a very yeah. complex disorder with many different factors that interact, but it is rooted in the uh, pathophysiology of COVID itself. It's really different and distinct mm. from um, chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, ME, which, and other post-viral syndromes. And I, I really want to get into COVID. I, I, throughout the pandemic, I very much appreciated your voice, your research, and the way you compile lots of different opinions and make uh, very sophisticated um, opinions of your own. And I want to get into COVID, especially long COVID. But before we get there, when you think about working with patients, uh, what are what are some of the common it's kind of a twofold question. What are the common uh, ways in which you approach anyone that comes into your office? And two, like, are you seeing common threads throughout all of these complex disorders? Like, is it, do you see it coming from, you know, obviously it's not a single source, but do you see commonalities often? Okay, well, first of all, the, the approach that I found that really has been helpful um, in decades of doing this work is, I mean, it starts with a history. and But it is getting a really detailed history of 
the order of events. Like, uh, so often someone will come in to see me, and they've been really sick for five years, and I'll say, "Well, let's we'll get to the we'll get to that, but let's go back to your childhood. Where were you born? Uh, what were the health issues?" Um, uh, that, that occurred while you were growing up. And I'll ask them questions about their nutrition, their upbringing, their schooling, their physical activity. And, and I will often find it important to really go through a person's life history to understand how they got to the point where their health broke down and they developed this illness. So what I want to understand is who is the person to whom this happened. That is a really critical step in trying to understand so someone's beautiful. illness. And and then from there, how has this um, how how has this ailment changed over time? What have been the dynamics of it? How has it been affected by therapeutic modalities? Did you change your diet? What was the effect of food? Um, if you did, what treatments have you received and how have you responded to those treatments? That's really um, important to create a dynamic understanding of each individual and where they are in their illness. Then I'll do lab tests, of course, but the, the lab tests can be very, very helpful, but without getting that narrative, that chronological story, uh, the lab tests are, can be really misleading. <clears throat> and talk to me about that history. Like, are you looking for um, maybe things like toxic exposure as a kid? Are you looking for traumatic experiences? Are you looking for, um, I don't know, like attachment types? Like, what, are, well, what exactly are you looking all for? All of those things. Um, the factors. Those and so... Uh, and it may help just for me to go back into some of my own history and getting to where where I came from and where I went to. Um, so, I mean, I was trained, I was very well trained in internal medicine a long time ago, um, during the um, 1960s and early 70s. Um, I was at NYU School of Medicine. I was at Bellevue Hospital for my training. Um, and the training there was very intense. Uh, and it, it actually was pretty state-of-the-art when it came to dealing with acute critical illnesses. As soon as I left there and started teaching, I realized that, there, that it was really limited. I mean, you, when you get out of that acute situation where you're just dealing with the crisis and you start dealing with people in the real world, outside the confines of the hospital... Um, the tools that you have are, I mean, they're just not up to the task. There are so many problems that people have that you are in no way prepared to really understand. And um, so I set out trying to figure out, okay, well, what do I need to know to be able to deal with these problems? And um, at a certain point, I left academic medicine and went into practice in a small town. And I described this odyssey in the second book that I wrote. Um, which was I forget when that was published. Now, um, I think in the in the sometime in the nineties, um, and um, and what I realized is there are definitely things about people's lives that we need to understand: nutrition, environment, 
behavior, patterns of thought, relationships. These all seem to me very important um, and totally ignored. And so I set about studying them. And the thing that really blew me away is that in each of these areas, there had been a tremendous amount of scientific research done indicating how important each of these was for human health. And none of it had crossed over into the practice of medicine. But it was there. I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't something I had to make up. All the research had been done in each of these areas. It just hadn't carried over. So I started trying to apply it into my own medical practice. And um, as I started to feel comfortable with it and started to get the first, so the first thing I realized was that the patient was very important. There's, I, I was in this small town and I would say to patients who came in, look, we can control your blood pressure, your arthritis, your ulcers in two ways. I can prescribe drugs. Of course, the drugs that are used to control um, your arthritis may make your ulcer worse. You know, I mean, that's the problem with medication. It, it works right. um, and it's intrinsic to the way most meds work. Um, or you can do it through diet and lifestyle. Every person would say to me, oh, I want to do it the natural way, doc. But when I saw them a month later, they hadn't changed. They hadn't done anything. And so um, I actually did a fellowship in behavioral medicine to try and figure out how do you get people to change? And I realized that nobody knew that. (laughs) I mean, I didn't learn anything in that fellowship. Um, But when I started working with people who were highly motivated, as I'm sure most of your listeners are, things really started. Mm -hmm. I mean, just things just opened up. Uh, Working with these methods with people who really wanted to embrace them, who were ready to change, who wanted the information, who would have been disappointed if I didn't tell them, you have to change your lifestyle and take a drug. Then I just started, I started to see so many things happen. And, um, Mm -hmm. And so then I started lecturing to other doctors who were interested, and there were very few at the time, this is like in the 1980s, uh, about things I, I was observing. And I, went at, I would get feedback from them, hey, this stuff really works. So I realized it wasn't just me establishing some kind of relationship with a patient, but that what I was recommending to people, the changes in environment, in um, in lifestyle and in nutrition were actually having an effect. Um, and so uh, that was very reinforcing. I continued to teach and I started to put together, uh, I looked at what is it that I'm doing that is making a difference? Why am I so much more effective now than when I was just using the tools I had been trained with at Bellevue? Um, and then I came up with a scheme that I um, basically that I called person-centered diagnosis. It was a way of understanding an illness, not by naming the disease, which is what conventional medicine does, but by looking at all of the factors that funnel in to creating this illness in this individual at this time. Um, there are genetic factors, there are developmental factors that have to do with early life experiences and exposures. There are precipitating events. There's something, maybe it's an infection, maybe it's a toxic exposure, maybe it's uh, uh, some emotional or physical trauma that then changes 
the playing field for that person. And then there, that unleashes a whole series of triggers that activate problems and mediators, which are the, which are the things that create the end effects that we're, that as doctors we're seeing. And, um, that actually, that notion, that way of looking at things has been adopted by the Institute of Functional Medicine as part of its training. Um, uh, in a way, I feel, I, I mean, I first presented it in the early 90s to the first functional medicine meeting, but I, wow. I realized that this wasn't ever something that I created. It was something that I observed um, by looking that's at what so worked. Cool. I mean, that's literally... It's literally what I'm learning. Yeah. My, I'm learning your your way of thinking, and it's you know I have to tell you it's so um, it's so beautiful because I mean I the one of the reasons I knew I wanted to be in the business of helping people heal and especially as it pertains to medicine and or the medical community and nutrition specifically is I grew up with a sick mother my whole life, in and out of the hospital all the time. And every single experience for her was so dehumanizing. It was so lacking of dignity. And <clears throat> it was always about her illness. And in fairness to the medical community, like she was also seeking that too. She wanted to name it and blame it. And you know, that's, that's not only like what the medical community has been taught, it's what we've been taught, that we just need to name it, blame it, and then take a medication for it instead of in whatever way we can learn what got us there. So maybe we can learn how to partially undo or how to work through the trauma or live with it in a different way. But it's so empowering, uh, this framework. Um, yeah, I, I have found it to be empowering to me as a physician. And it definitely has been empowering to those patients who want answers. They want to try and understand, you know, how did this happen? What can I do to reverse it? What can I do to prevent mm -hmm. it? And um, emotionally along the way, what I realized is that so many patients are basically bullied by their doctors. And this isn't only true for yes. conventional um, practitioners. I, I've seen it happen with alternative practitioners as well. They're really kind of, yep. you know, this is what you have and this is what you have to do. And um, really what I have sought out, sought out continuously is a collaborative um, relationship. And, um, and there are patients I have learned so much from um, because, uh, and I love to work with people like that who, who want to be responsible for their own health. Um, and yeah. so, and my goal there is to be a teacher and a guide and an aide. Now you can't always do that. Sometimes, sometimes you have to be directive. You have to lay down the law. Sometimes you've got to just treat somebody and say, do this. Um, but it's never the way that I prefer to do it. And how do you find that there are common threads like between those mediators? Like, are there are like their top three mediators and triggers? <laughs> okay, well, okay, it's a little more complicated, I think, than that. But yeah, yeah. there are there definitely are common threads, and and they emerge over time. So, um, environmental pollution definitely plays a role in not only being a source of triggers that make people acutely ill, but in shaping the response 
of our mediators. So that's been an important area. And there's, there's like outdoor air pollution. There's indoor air pollution. There's electromagnetic water pollution. Water pollution. Water, water and food. And I, in the, um, in the last medical book that I wrote, which was called the Allergy Solution which I wrote with my son, Jonathan, uh, we, we spent wow. a lot of time uh, looking at um, looking at environmental pollution factors. Um, and then there's the, the, and then there's nutrition. And what seems to be critical with nutrition, and it clearly relates to the way the body handles pollution. And again, we deal with that in the allergy solution um, is that um, are nutritional components that enhance detoxification and that reverse inflammation. So one, one of the themes I would say that emerges is the role of chronic low-grade inflammation in creating ill health. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one area. And of course, there are many things that feed into that. And, but there's a lot of science behind this, the impact of diet, yeah on inflammation um, and that can be divided up into general food patterns and then the effects of specific foods. So from a general food pattern, things like bioflavonoids and fiber, plant-based foods, um, magnesium, all really important. In fact, there was a study that looked at the relationship between markers of inflammation and dietary factors and the dietary content of magnesium was the one thing that, was, that they were most readily a able to link to the levels of inflammatory markers. That is, lo wow. less magnesium from food, more inflammation. And magnesium is something I've been interested in for decades. Um, and um, I've, of course, done a lot of work with supplementation, but this was looking at food sources. So, so, so that is one really important theme. The other area is the microbiome. That is the organisms that live in your body. And that's a, a lot of my work from, let's say, the last decade of the 20th century into the first 15 years of this has looked at um, at the microbiome, its many components, and how how those microbes impact our health. Um, and I mean, 95 or more percent of the chemicals that circulate in our blood originate with the microbes living in our gut, mostly bacteria. And I mean, our bodies may change them, but if you take animals that have no bacteria living in their gut at all, they have like one or two percent of the metabolic complexity is measured in their blood compared to, to normal wow. animals. So um, I would say the, the role of the total body microbiome, but especially the gut microbiome in health is the other, is another major plank in uh, and another, and another theme. And it, it relates to inflammation because inflammation impacts the microbiome, but the microbiome, impacts inflammatory responses um, yeah. and uh, and th and those so those have been really two major areas now if there's a third if we had to limit the next to the third I mean it would <laughs> yeah. it has to be relationships it has to be our relationships yeah. with 
other people, with the planet, with our environment, um, our, and, and our attitude, our attitudes towards those. I looked at and have written about and lectured about the impact of gut microbes on behavior. I, I published a paper called mm-hmm. The Gut Microbiome in the Brain. And this stuff is, some of this mm-hmm. is so interesting. I'm, I'm just going to talk about it for a few minutes. Please. Okay, so. They, I'm looking up that paper. As okay, so they, well, <laughs> this, yeah, this is in that paper, actually. So there are these studies um, that have been done with so-called germ-free animals. That is, they have these rats and mice that they raise um, uh, without any microbes in their body. They, um, and so they want to see how, how does the lack of microbes impact them? And so they look at behaviors. I don't always agree with the interpretations of the behaviors, but one of the things that they do is they will take them, they take these rodents in a lab and put them in what's called an open field activity box. It's just, they're just in a cage. And how do they behave being in that cage? Well, normal mice are very timid. They kind of stick to the edges of the cage. Um, normal rats are, are not timid at all. They they roam around the whole maze. Okay, they, they don't. They have very little fear. Germ-free mice behave more like rats. That is, they wander around the open field activity box. They're not nearly as cautious or timid, whereas germ-free rats behave more like mice. They're very timid, and they hang huh. to the edges of of the box, and they don't explore it. So, um, nonetheless, both types of organisms, if you look at their stress hormone responses, they are way more stressed than wild-type animals. So, it's not that, oh, the mice are now relaxed, and they're roaming around. No, they are really stressed, but they're not behaving the way that normal mice do. And the rats are really stressed, but they're not behaving like normal rats. And when you think about this from an evolutionary perspective, mice are timid for a reason. And and we think about, I mean, you know, what are we, timid as a mouse, that's a human expression. Whereas nobody says timid as a rat. I mean, we think of rats as aggressive, you know, you lousy rat, you. So, I mean, Mice need to be timid to survive. That's how they get by, by because you have to balance the, the, the need to avoid predators from the need to get food. Rats don't need to be timid. They need to be aggressive seeking out their food. So these behaviors that are due to the microbiome are important from an evolutionary perspective. So the question I raised is, well, what are the behaviors that humans need? What do we need to survive as a species? Well, I think we need two things, and they really are influenced, impacted by the microbiome. One is compassion, and the other is problem solving. And um, there, there are studies that have looked at the impact of, say, probiotic bacteria on compassion in humans. Lactobacilli enhance compassion. Okay, so, I mean, you know, think about that. And and there's a probiotic, uh, mixed bifido lactobacillus probiotic that was used in France, given to allegedly healthy people. It helped their problem-solving skills. So clearly, the future of our species 
is going to depend upon compassion and problem solving. Uh, I don't see any other future for us without that. And the microbes in our so, so, so I'd say that the third plank of this, and it relates to the other two. It relates to inflammation, and it relates to the microbiome. Is is our ability to nurture empathy, compassion, and rational problem solving um, hmm. in our offspring, in in our students. And the intersection of all of that is so interesting that, you know, what you're saying is that they're all connected. We're not uh, our, our capability or our ability to be compassionate is linked to our microbiome, <laughs> which is linked to what we eat, which is linked to our relationships, which is. Yeah. And I think we forget often as humans what an ecosystem we are, that we are not, you know, a digestive system and a cardiovascular system and a. Um, you know, nervous system that everything is so interconnected and that web that you're talking about, the web of interconnectedness uh, really is at the cornerstone I know of, of your work and, and the work in functional medicine and is hopefully allowing, it sounds like from the work that you're talking about for people to <clears throat> start to understand how every decision that we make ladders up to who we are. That's something we talk a lot about here at Sakara. It's like every time you sit down to eat, you are deciding, you know, how worthy you are to feel good and how good you will feel. And that's not to scare anyone or put pressure because I'm certainly one that will reach for a glass of wine here and there or some French fries when I really want them. But I also have learned over the past many years how to fuel my body and how to create a body I feel really good in. And once we do that, I think then we've kind of garnered the permission. We call it eat clean, play dirty. Um, but that it's, it's Whitney, my partner talks about this all the time that she had all these kind of other um, manifestations of her acne that no dermatologist ever asked her. Like she had really bad anxiety you know, and her dermatologist wasn't asking her about that. So she didn't even think that her anxiety might be connected to her acne. Um, so that web of interconnectedness is so beautiful. Today, I am very excited to tell you about our Super Bar collection. We recently updated our cult favorites, Detox, Beauty, and Energy Super Bars that you all know and love to ensure that we're continuing to deliver on our commitment to providing you with the best tasting and most nutritious products on the market. These are the perfect on-the-go snack and ensure you don't have to sacrifice quality for convenience. All of these newly formulated bars focus on stabilizing your blood sugar, which, as you know, because you listen to the Sakara Life podcast, is at the core of metabolic health. We have increased the protein in each bar, so it now contains 12 grams. Each bar has 40% of your fiber, which is really important for your microbiome. The sugar has been cut in half, also a part of stabilizing your blood sugar. We have new functional ingredients, things like sea buckthorn oil that have omega-7. They're all USDA certified, no added chemicals, toxins, etc. as always. So our collection has energy. Energy bar is really delicious. It's kind of like this uh, Mexican hot cocoa. It's like chocolate, but it has cinnamon. It contains adaptogenic mushrooms to increase energy and lower cortisol. Our Beauty bars are 
probably have the biggest change. They went from like a strawberry kind of burst to now these ones are lemon, citrus, and poppy seed. They are so juicy and delicious. Contain sea buckthorn oil, as I was talking about earlier, enhances collagen production and hydrates the skin. And our detox bar, which I'm allowed to have a favorite, I'd say is my favorite. It has blue spirulina that supports the detox pathways in the body and has sesame seeds, which not only add a really delicious texture to the bar, which is blue by the way, but also contains added calcium and vitamin E, etc. So check out the new super bars and when you get to the website and you check out, type in podcast 15 for 15% off your purchase. I do want to get to COVID and long COVID because I think your work in the area is um, just so informative and interesting. And I I really, you know, for anyone listening, um, I, I love going to your site, Dr. Gallen. I love your, you know, critical updates and your guidebook. Um, I think you have a really beautiful knack for bringing um, a clear perspective in a sea of information and perhaps misinformation. Um, So can you give us the 101 on the impact of, of COVID on our biology and how it could manifest into what we call long COVID and why something like the common cold that might not be so? Okay, well, um, this is, of course, very complicated, and um, the full story is still emerging. Um, but I think before talking about the impact of COVID on our biology, I want to talk about the impact of our biology on COVID and susceptibility. Um, mm. What's become clear about the outcome of COVID? After all, let's just start with the fact this is a virus. Okay, we're exposed to viruses all the time. Um, Some of them live in our body forever, like Epstein-Barr virus, after we get infected. Um, All the viruses we get as children, that helps to condition our immune system um, to respond uh, in stronger ways to other viruses and bacteria. Um, the, The factors that led to COVID-19 being so disastrous um, have to do with the biology of the people who get COVID-19. In Africa, for example, the impact of COVID, everybody expected two years ago, um, I was so, uh, I mean, I, I really felt agony thinking about what was gonna happen in Africa when COVID swept through there, it, it, it was milder in Africa than anywhere else. And that has to do with dietary patterns, lifestyle patterns, and the fact that Africans have been exposed to so many infections that their immune systems respond differently. So mm-hmm. um, the that doesn't mean it hasn't been significant. I mean, it, this is a dangerous um virus it is one that mutates frequently that is really hard um uh that it's it's if you it's hard to say this is where it is right now because a week later or two weeks later it may change but the biology of people who get infected really determines outcome and um 
one example of this uh, on a very practical level is this amazing study that was done among health professionals in six countries. Um, and it was done by top researchers at Hopkins, Stanford, Harvard, Columbia, um, Yale. Um, uh, they looked at their diet in the year before COVID using standardized tools. And they looked at the outcome. These were people who had survived COVID. And they went back and they looked at how severe was their COVID. They classified them as mild, negligible and mild or moderate and severe. And from a nutritional perspective, those people that ate more vegetables had milder COVID when they took all the other variables into account. And increasing, and it wasn't even a huge number of vegetables, increasing from roughly two servings a day to three servings a day was enough to create this difference. Um, and interestingly, the people who had been following low-carb, low high-protein diets, they were four times as likely to have moderate or severe COVID than the people eating plant-based diets. So it's not about the sugar, even though the people eating the plant-based diets were eating less sugar than others. It was really about the increase in vegetable consumption. And what do you get with vegetables? You get fiber and you get bioflavonoids. And those really have a profound effect on your gut microbiome and the level of inflammation in your body. Um, so, um, but, and, and there are studies indicating what characteristics of the microbiome not, not only predispose to severe COVID, but to long COVID. The loss of certain um, organisms, species that are called keystone species that hold everything together. So we can start by saying that a kind of modern Western diet and lifestyle, which is no longer just Western, I mean, it's kind of dominated large parts of the world, that is part of the problem with COVID. Um, mm. The COVID ha does have a pretty unique physiology in terms of the way it makes people sick, the way it, this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus enters cells, destroys a critical key enzyme as part of the entry process. This then damages, this then creates inflammation in blood vessels, damages mitochondria, the powerhouses that uh, energize our cells. Um, that leads to immune imbalances. There's a diagram that I put up. Uh, it's on my Instagram account, and I will be doing something more with it, but it's called the web of long COVID. And now I limited it because when I looked for a spider web on the internet, I could only find one with eight skeins going out from the center. But I mean, basically, it looks at the way um, this, the center, the deficiency of this key enzyme ACE2 and the damage to mitochondria that results from that creates all these different phenomena which then interrelate with one another to create um, tissue damage, organ, organ damage, which characterizes acute COVID and also long COVID. And um, uh, as a understanding COVID this way allows treatment strategies that can help mitigate the damage of acute COVID, prevent long COVID, and reverse long COVID. 
Now, we're not all the way there yet. Um, I mean, there's a lot to learn and a lot to develop. But I do believe that this is an underst- this is a functional medicine understanding of COVID and long COVID that, that I think is the foundation for really um, uh, for helping overcome the impact of this pandemic, especially when it comes to long COVID. And to get back to your mission of helping people help themselves, essentially, knowing what you know now, I understand this is an ever-changing kind of field, and also knowing that you, over your entire career, have been one who helps bridge new science into practice. What are you seeing as the greatest or most important kind of nutritional, and that's including supplements in this, um, positive, have the, the biggest impact on our, whether or not we contract COVID or, or have a severe illness, and then also help um, deter the impact or lessen the impact um, of long COVID? Okay, so I would say that from a dietary perspective, it's the flavonoids and the fiber found in in plant-based foods, um, vegetables, fruits, herbs and spices also are great sources of bioflavonoids that are really important. Back in um, 2005, I had published a weight loss book called The Fat Resistance Diet. It was based on the idea of using an anti-inflammatory diet to combat um, uh, obesity and to help people lose weight. Um, uh, that At the time, that was a kind of revolutionary concept that um, it was widely recognized that being overweight created inflammation, but it was not yet recognized that inflammation keep, created weight gain. Um, I identified mechanisms by which that would happen. And over the past um, 15 years, it's become pretty clear that those are real mechanisms and they really happen in the real world. Um, So the kind of diet, the kind of anti-inflammatory diet that's described there um, uh, and in other um, publications by other writers, um, I, I think is is the first step. And the closest thing that comes to it in terms of broad consumption is the so-called Mediterranean diet, which is not one diet. I mean, the Greek Mediterranean diet and the Spanish Mediterranean diet are different, but they have a lot in common. Um, and, um, and then there are certain specific um, nutrients and supplements that make a difference. Vitamin D, really important. In, in, in fact, I think the attitude of the media towards all the research on vitamin D has been a real disservice to the yeah. people of this country. Instead of saying, yeah, hey, vitamin D is associated with decreased severity of COVID, and there are actually clinical trials showing that. What the media has done and the official messaging has been is, well, you know, we don't think you know, I mean, sure, there are these observational studies. You really need to get vaccinated. Don't worry about vitamin D. Really irresponsible approach. Um, I mean, I'm not against vaccines. I think, uh, and we can, you know, I, but I, I think we don't understand 
the scientific establishment has not really understood what the vaccines were able to do. And that's why we mm -hmm. had this disaster over the winter with Omicron. Um, uh, that's, I mean, vaccines are able to help induce T-cell memory. We need to think about nutritionally, how do we help people, especially older people who don't naturally have a good T-cell memory response? How do we help them develop a good T-cell memory response? Because that is very much dependent on nutrition. Um, T-cell... And your microbiome, right? And the microbiome, absolutely. Um, gut microbes, butyrate produced by healthy gut microbes, which happen to be depleted with COVID-19, um, certain mm -hmm. flavonoids, and, and certain other nutritional factors and supplements like carnitine. They, they, they enhance these T memory cells because the T memory cells themselves have very specific nutritional needs. So vitamin D, curcumin, um, other bioflavonoids, and there are clinical trials with curcumin and quercetin in acute COVID showing really significant beneficial effects. Um, the, and so those are things that I recommend to my patients when they're in a high risk situation or if they've just gotten symptoms, mm -hmm. whatever other treatments they're getting. Uh, resveratrol, which is um, found in, um, in a number of foods and, and red wine. Um, I, don't think red, I don't think you can drink enough red wine to get the solution, <laughs> um, but um, resveratrol also is helpful. There aren't the same clinical trials, but it enhances the T, the T cell uh, function the memory cells, it has anti-inflammatory effects, helps to restore this vital enzyme, ACE2, that's been depleted. Uh, so, so I think those are all things to begin with, and a healthy microbiome. And what feeds that healthy microbiome is fiber and prebiotic yeah. substances. So what I hear you saying, if I were to sum it up, is that uh, we are at a time in history when human beings are metabolically quite ill, especially Americans, um, and inflamed. And whether it's to get back to feeling better or it's to help combat the long-term effects or severity of COVID, the answers um, or possible answers are one and the same, and that's to make sure you're nourishing your microbiome and what your microbiome needs is fiber and a diversity of plants. And you also mentioned helping aid in the body's ability to decrease inflammation and increase detoxification, and that requires bioflavonoids, polyphenols that also come from plants and getting lots of different colors in your diet. Uh, right, but um, I just wanna say that the bioflavonoids also impact the microbiome. They sort of act like curators right. of the microbiome. They shape who mm. grows there. The fiber tends to have, the fiber will support the growth of a lot of organisms, but then the flavonoids kind of shape it. They're like the sculpture. They're the Michelangelo. Interesting. <laughs> And talk to me about long COVID and like, what is it? I, I've heard a lot about it. I've heard a lot about it in the news. Um, 
what is it and how prevalent or common is it? Okay, so um, the definition is blurry right now. At present, the term is used to describe people who 12 weeks or more after having had COVID are still not well. And there are, I mean, there, there are dozens of symptoms that have been identified. The most common being fatigue, brain fog, um, shortness of breath, cough, um, and uh, but there can be pain, there can be gastrointestinal problems, um, skin disorders, um, the, and the fatigue is very complicated, as is the shortness of breath. There's not one mechanism involved. Um, beyond that, studies have shown that if that somebody who has recovered from COVID over the next six months has twice the risk of developing diabetes or high blood pressure as a comparable person who did not get COVID. Um, they have twice wow. the risk of being given a diagnosis of a psychiatric or neurologic disease. So there are a lot of things that are, uh, that are happening that we don't see with ordinary post-viral syndromes. And, um, but I think they're all related to one another through the mechanisms that I describe in this web of long COVID. Now, um, once real damage to organs occurs, merely removing the original cause, that is just fixing up the microbiome, restoring the vital enzymes and mitochondrial function, it may or may not be enough to get to help mm -hmm. this person fully restore their health. Um, what has been very disappointing to me in terms of the response in the medical community is there are a lot of places that are doing great research right now on long COVID. Patients who that I know of who have gone to them have been told, well, we're doing this research and we would even put you in our research study, but we're not treating causes. We're only treating symptoms here. I, I mean, you know, in a way you could say, well, what else is new? That's the way medicine is mostly being <laughs> practiced. But it yeah. is... Um, it is so disturbing to see that even in centers where they're looking at the causes, they're looking at the physiology, they're looking at what's creating this, they're not treating that. I mean, they're just treating the symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, which is not going to mm -hmm. cure people. I mean, I really believe that most people with long COVID can and will get cured. Um, first of all, there's a natural tendency for it to improve over time, but there are steps that can be taken that really can reverse the damage and the dysfunction. Like, like what? Can you walk yeah. us through some of that? Um, sure. Um, well, we start with, um, I mean, it, it, in part, it depends on where you need the damage to be changed. But uh, let me take two types of symptoms. Shortness of breath. Uh, that's one of the commoner symptoms. And almost everybody who is short of breath after COVID they go to a doctor, they go to a cardiologist. He said, your heart's fine. There's no heart problems. Most of them will go to a pulmonary specialist and they'll be told, yeah, we don't really find anything wrong with your lungs. Um, although some will be told, well, your lung function is diminished, but it's not in a way that there are any drugs that treat. Um, unless the person had asthma, then you treat the asthma. But um, 
the shortness of breath with long COVID is due to something that has been described since the early days of the pandemic in people who were acutely ill. It is a problem of the circulation in the lung. And that is the key to understanding long COVID and COVID itself. This is a disease of the circulation. The virus enters the body as a respiratory virus, um, but so much of what happens is due to impairment of circulation because of, of the way in which the virus gets into cells. You have inflammation in blood vessels. You have um, microscopic blood clots forming. You actually get a loss of blood vessels in the lung. And so you get an imbalance between the ability of the lungs to bring in air, but the ability of the circulation to carry oxygen. And uh, out of the lungs. And that is treatable. It's treatable with certain drugs that are used off-label. It's treatable with dietary supplements. Um, even something like aspirin may be helpful to the extent that there's clotting um, involved. Now, it takes, I mean, this is a hard thing to do on your own, unfortunately. It, it takes working with a physician who is willing to go, you know, to go out with you, to hold your hand and walk you through the, um, the wilderness of treatment. Um, it's one of the reasons I have created a couple of videos about this um, to try and help people figure out what they can do on their own. Um, if we take the brain symptoms, the issue in the brain is, um, oh, so let me just say in terms of things that you can take yourself, the uh, cocoa bioflavonoids may be helpful. There's a researcher in Boston who's looked at this. He's putting everybody on the cocoa bioflavonoids. I will often add to that um, a Chinese herb called Dan Shen, which has been shown to improve circulation. Uh, it's used mostly for circulatory problems. It also interferes with the abnormal blood clotting, and it can work with aspirin or independently of aspirin. Omega-3 fats, really important. Um, they impact circulatory function, immune function, um, brain function, blood clotting, um, and they have been shown in supplementation to have, when people are acutely ill, severely with long COVID in ICU, um, omega-3 fats have been shown to help with outcome. So that's one, so you can either get that from food from eating oily, cold water, um, wild fish. Um, of course, there aren't enough of those in the world to feed the human population. So I would say plant sources are really warranted. Uh, you know, you should look for them. Chia seeds and flax seeds, um, hemp seeds are good sources. Um, but um, supplementing with omega-3 oils can have a major impact. So then if we talk about the brain and, and recovering brain function, and I do have a video on YouTube called Your Brain After COVID-19 or something like that. This was posted last summer, so it could probably be updated, but most of the ideas there are still um, really valid. Um, there is a substance that your brain makes called uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF, which helps recovery after injury.
And it would appear as if most people who get COVID, especially if they lose their sense of smell, have damage in the brain. Um, and it may be as many as 30% of people who have had COVID, even mild COVID. Yeah, I mean, the, the statistics are jaw-dropping and, uh, and really alarming. Um, BDNF can reverse all of that and can enhance brain healing. What are the factors that allow you to make more BDNF? Curcumin has been studied and has been shown to do that. About 1,000 milligrams a day. Um, omega-3 fats, um, especially if combined with the antioxidant alpha-lipoic acid. Um, now, you may need 2,200 milligrams of EPA and DHA per day, so it may be beyond what you're going to get from diet alone. But then we're dealing with an illness. We're not just dealing with prevention. Um, a healthy gut microbiome has a tremendous impact on BDNF because a healthy gut microbiome produces a short-chain fatty acid called butyrate. Butyrate or butyric acid um, is volatile. That is, it evaporates into the air if it's sitting in a, in a Petri dish or a or test tube, it, um, it will um, diffuse into the tissues of your body. It's made mostly in the large intestine, and it nourishes the lining there, and it, it acts to encourage the growth of anti-inflammatory bacteria. It is itself anti-inflammatory. You get it from a high-fiber diet and the right bacteria. Um, but it diffuses through your body. It gets to the brain. And in the brain, it encourages the production of BDNF. So the microbiome and its postbiotic products have a significant impact on brain recovery after COVID. This is all so fascinating. And uh, I, I live in New York City, as I know you, you teach here as well. <clears throat> It's impossible to avoid COVID. Like it's, uh, you know, you're 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 always next to people here. You're it's it's not like I live on you know a big piece of land somewhere. So for a lot of people, you're you can't live a life avoiding COVID anymore. You know, it's going endemic, um, and so listening to you talk about these stats it's it's pretty alarming and can be pretty scary so is your it sounds like the you know we talked about the things that you can do nutritionally and with supplements if people are experiencing what they think might be long covid how do they find a doctor to help them um that's very challenging and um actually what i've um there are what I have wanted to do is to create um, some kind of course for the Institute of Functional Medicine uh, on this comprehensive yes, approach should. to long COVID. Hopefully that will happen soon. We're in discussions about that. Um, it's, um, uh, I really sympathize with the people who are struggling trying to get answers. Um, and um, I, I will try to update what I've written and uh, it's just a question of finding time to put it together into a kind of a self-help manual like you know do these things if this isn't working you know then maybe yeah. you need to look 
um, to something that only a doctor can do. Or these are the ways you can tell if you really need a doctor to help. Uh, in the video, in my YouTube video, Healing Long COVID, I do describe some tests you can do at home that may tell you, okay. oh, you need to see a specialist about this. We'll make sure we share that in the Yeah, in the I, I, um, uh, I've gotten very <clears throat> good feedback about the usefulness of, to people of what's in that video. And, and it was designed to get this information out there. I, uh, I think we're going to have to have you back because I want to, I'm so curious uh, to know kind of what the science, um, the most recent science is, you know, that's coming out right now and will come out over the next six months and would love to continue to hear your, your perspective. And thank you so much. I, I know I'm not just speaking for myself, but so many people out there, thank you for the, the work that you do to bridge science and also clinical practice and, and taking action to help people really transform their health and their lives. Um, we like to end on light work. So, <clears throat> you know, there's so many things I heard in this, in this uh, discussion, but if there's anything that you're feeling called to share, to implore people to really take uh, control of their, of their health or their lives or their feelings. Well, um, I kind of view COVID-19 as um, the great revealer. It's um, because it really reveals so much about individual people, societies, and the world we live in. And so I would ask people to start by asking themselves, what have you learned about yourself from the pandemic? And what is really important to you and what and how does how is this pandemic, which is a crisis that we're all living through? What kind of focus to that question of what's important to me has the pandemic brought to you? Uh, I would start mm -hmm. there and see where that takes you. This is a great this is a learning opportunity. Beautiful. I mean, it is. Yes, it is a tragedy, um, but view it as an opportunity to learn and grow and ask yourself, mm. how can I use this to learn and grow? Beautiful. That'll take you outside your comfort zone. <laughs> Indeed it will. Our favorite thing to do over here. Dr. Gallen, thank you so, so much for being with us today. Okay. We really appreciate it. Thanks for it. giving me the opportunity to share my experiences with your audience, Danielle. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy it's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. 
The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Saqqara Signature Nutrition Program, head to saqqara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Saqqara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.